Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. If you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, that's on page 1117, 1117. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I vividly remember one night when I was a small boy. I don't know how old, six, maybe seven. I had gone to bed just a little while earlier, and so I probably probably read a little book or something and was still on my way to sleep, but I could hear my mom still up and around. We had a small house, and so... We were never very far from each other, and I could hear that she was up still watching TV and doing something in the kitchen. And my mom, I'm sure, assumed that I was well on my way to sleep. It had been a little bit. When suddenly, when she was out in the living room and she could hear me softly crying in my room. So, like a good mother, she came back to check on me to see what could be upsetting me, like what was causing me to cry. What was it that literally had me in tears on my bed? Was it a scary nightmare? Nope. What, had I remembered something hard from the day and was just kind of working through it in my mind again? Nope. Was I, was I afraid or worried about something that was coming up tomorrow? Nope, not at all. What had me in tears was a smell. I had been almost asleep when this aroma wafted into my room this aroma of salty buttery goodness flooded my nostrils and i knew in that moment mom is making popcorn and in that moment i could almost see the fluffy whitish yellow pieces i could almost taste those butter soaked kernels covered in salt and it was all i could think about I had to have the popcorn. As I lay on my bed, I was craving it so much, I cried. Now, why do I tell you this? Number one, so you can see what a weird kid I was. (laughs) Secondly, because Peter's going to tell us about a craving like that in our passage. And I want you to have a, a category for what does it look like to crave something? And what Peter's going to do is he's going to help us understand what we should crave as followers of Jesus and why. Okay, so before we get into that, though, let's step back a second. And let's remember the context of what's going on here in this letter. Remember, this is a letter. Peter's writing to these Christians living as exiles in a land that's not their home. And he opens this letter to them by reminding them of this incredible salvation that is theirs in Christ. By God's great mercy, they've been born again. 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, they, though they face temporary trials here, they have an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for them. And not only that, they too are being guarded by God's power to make sure they reach that inheritance and that they obtain the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. So after he unpacks this glorious salvation, then in verse 13, remember there was a shift from just telling us about the salvation to saying, therefore, in light of all that, here's what your new life that you've been born again into should look like. And it's important that we remember that what Peter has been saying, and we'll say this morning, he's laying out something that is normative for the Christian. He's not merely suggesting that, hey, here's some good thoughts. If you want your best life, I have a couple recommendations for you. He's not just giving them, here's one option. Let me lay this out, take it or leave it, what you think. He's saying, this is what the new life in Christ looks like. Those who are alive in Christ, who've been born again, he says they do certain things. Okay, so what are the things that he's told us all Christians are called to do? Well, already we've seen Christians hope in grace. Christians are to be holy. Christians are to fear God. And Christians are to love one another, as Pastor Ben walked us through last week. And then today, he's going to add one more. Christians are to crave the word. Now, what does that mean, and why should we do it? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So to look at that, I've got three points for you. Okay, and they're really easy. Point one is verse one, verse two, verse three. So first point, get rid of appetite-ruining sins. Get rid of appetite-ruining sins. So that you can, number two, crave the word. Crave the word. Number three, because you've tasted the Lord's goodness. So it's kind of, it's just one sentence, but broken down into three points. Get rid of appetite-ruining sins and instead crave the word because you've tasted the Lord's goodness. Okay, so that's where we're going today. So the first thing Peter tells us here is that we are to get rid of appetite-ruining sins. Look at verse 1 again. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, hopefully we want to be good readers of our Bible, so the first thing that should jump out at us is that jump out at us is the word so. Or maybe your Bible says, therefore. This word tips us off that, okay, these commands, this command to put these things away, it's not coming out of nowhere. Peter's not just reaching into thin air saying, uh, oh, that reminds me, do, don't do these things. No, no, these are flowing out of something that came before it. Okay? So what came before this? Well, Pastor Ben walked us through last week. It was Peter telling them that they've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. It was through this word, the word that verse 25 up above told us is the good news that was preached to them. It was through this word that they have a whole new life. Therefore, he says, they should live in a way that is fitting with this new life. So what would be fitting with this new life? Well, what did Peter just tell them should be the result of their new life? Up in verse 22, he told them that since they've been born again, 
They should love one another earnestly. They should have a sincere, brotherly love for one another. Now he says, because that's what your lives should be marked by, because they should be marked by this sincere, brotherly love for one another, therefore, so, they should put away these sins because they are both appetite ruining toward the word and they are love destroying toward each other. Notice that the things Peter lists here, these are all vices that rip apart the fabric of their community. These things actively work against the kind of love that should mark the church, he says. So therefore, Peter says to put these five things away. Now, it's not just like, oh, there's some, I mean, I I say put that away probably 15 times a day in our home, trying to train our kids to put things away. And he's not just saying, oh, there's a little mess, pick it up and put it away. The putting away here is like a filthy, disgusting garment saying, take them off, get rid of it, put it far from you. And we see this language all over the New Testament, right? The putting off or putting away. And what's so interesting is that many times, often this language of putting away includes some of these same love-destroying sins. Let me give you just a sampling. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Then three verses later, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And James 1.21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Side note, notice James says put away all these things that are just love destroying and instead take in the word which is able to save your souls. File that away. We might come back to that. These sins that we see here There are all things that destroy the kind of sincere, brotherly love that Peter's calling us to here. So he says, you got to put them away. Take them off. Get rid of them. Why? Because they're deadly for love. You can't say, love one another and say, but it's okay if these things are here. He's like, those destroy it. They corrupt it. They snuff it out. They choke it. They drive it away. As a side note, Have you ever noticed how many of the instructions in the New Testament have to do with us either doing things that display our love for one another or not doing things that destroy our love for one another? I invite you to read your Bible, read your New Testament with that lens on and just see how many of the things that we're told to do or not do have to do with the way we love one another. The reason that's important is because the way Christians love each other in the church is no small matter to God. It's one of the themes that's shot through the whole New Testament. So if it's that important to God, one of the things that tells me is, okay, let's listen up and lean in. As Peter tells us, okay, what are the sins that we're supposed to get rid of? Okay, so let's look at them. First, we're going to go through these quickly. First, he says, put away all malice. Malice is is ill will toward others. It's the desire and intention to cause someone else harm. You hear people say like, 
he did this thing and said, well, was it malicious? They mean like, did he mean it to cause them harm? Was he trying to hurt them? And Peter's saying, you can't love people and want to hurt them. It's just common sense, right? So because that's true, put away all malice. Not just some of it, he says. Any ill will toward others has got to go. Another thing that has to go, deceit. Deceit. Because love can't thrive in a community where we deceive, mislead, or lie to each other. You know this, that trust is essential for love. So as Paul says in Ephesians 4, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And notice, deceit doesn't only mean telling lies to each other. You might think, well, I don't, I don't do that very often. I don't think I openly tell lies. It can also mean not telling the whole truth to each other. Just kind of giving a portion of the story, shading things a little bit, you know, embellishing or forgetting to mention that part. It's talking in ways that misrepresent the truth. And Peter says that kills love. So we must get rid of deceit. Related to deceit then, the next one is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This is when we act, this is when the way we act doesn't match up with reality. This is when we pretend, we fake it. We're we're not real with each other. This makes it hard for us to truly know and believe each other. This word hypocrisy here is actually the same word as sincere up in verse 22. You look up there when, but there's a, the only difference is that there's a not in front of it. So Peter says, you should have a sincere brotherly love, but hypocrisy literally means not sincere. It's a lack of sincerity. It means I don't mean the way I'm acting. So he says, so hypocrisy has got to go. The next one on his list then is envy or jealousy. This is wanting what someone else has and being upset because they have it and you don't. It's not just that they have it, it's that you want that thing and it's not fair that they get to have that. How come they get that opportunity? How come their family looks that way? Or how come they get to live in a house like that? How come their job's going this way? How come he got asked to do that at church? How come they got to go on a vacation there? Peter says, This works against love because love at its core is wanting good for others. If I love you, I want good for you. But envy turns it around and says, no, 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 I don't want you to have good if the good is the thing that I want. They're incompatible. I can't love you and be envious of you at the same time. They're they're desires working against each other. Love focuses on them. Envy focuses on me. So get rid of envy. And finally, put away slander. And I think, as I, as I wrestled through this list this week of just examining my own heart, I think this one might be the hardest. And I wonder if you might agree with me. Because here's what you need to know about slander in the Bible. Slander in the Bible is not limited only to saying false things about people. Right? That's how we sometimes use it. Like if you get sued for slander, it usually has to mean that you're spreading a false report. 
But that's not what the word in the Bible means. It's not that narrow. It, it includes that, but it's broader. And sometimes I think we let ourselves off the hook because we think, well, what I said, that, no, I wasn't slandering because that's true. Like, they really did do that thing. Like, I saw it. So we think, that's not, no, no, that's not slander. But the word in the Bible literally means to speak against. It's any kind of speaking badly about others. Of speaking in a way that tears them down. Paints them in a bad light. The emphasis on the word is on the hostility and lack of love, not on the falsity. James 4.11 uses the same word when it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then Titus 3 takes it even further when it says, We are to speak evil of no one. I don't know about you, but man, that is, that is sobering. So I just wonder, how are you doing with this one? Do you ever get home from work and just vent about that coworker? I mean, venting sounds a lot better than slandering, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you ever just fill someone in on, oh, I was just, I, hey, I just want to let you know what that other person did. You're not going to believe it. It was just so awful. Or you won't believe it. Like, that was just so dumb what they did. Can you believe they did that? Do you ever find yourself sharing about someone, and if you're honest, your only goal is to point out how bad it made them look? Often we do this, I think, because we believe, oh, if I can shine some spotlights on the way that they're bad, it'll help me look good. Like, if I can point out how dumb that decision was, it'll make me look wise and, and smart, like, like I'm making good choices. Or if I can show, like, can you believe how, like, that thing they did, how bad and wrong that was? It'll make me look pretty righteous and good and upstanding. So do you ever catch yourself tearing down someone else so it'll make you look better by comparison? Peter tells us here, if we are Christians, we need to get rid of slander and all these other sins because they are love-destroying and appetite-ruining. These sins are like junk food that ruins our appetite for the real food that we need. Just like junk food, they might taste good in the moment, right? I mean, there's a reason people eat junk food. Nobody makes you eat junk food. It, it tastes good. But it leaves you feeling gross and unhealthy. He's saying some of these sins, it, it might feel good in the moment to like share that, oh, I got to tell somebody about what I just saw them do. It might feel good. It might feel good to fake it so that people have a higher opinion of you than what's real. He says, but in the end, it'll leave you feeling gross and unhealthy. These sins will fill you up, just like junk food, with, with garbage and take away your hunger for food that has real nutrition. That's why those who've been given new life in Christ must put them all away, he says. But it's important that we see putting these all away isn't actually the main command here. That's not his main focus. We do need to put them away, but we need to put them away so that we can do something else instead. So what is that? What should we do instead? Verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So Peter says, we got to put away these appetite-ruining sins so we can instead long for the pure spiritual milk. But now we got a few questions to answer, right? First of all, 
What is this pure spiritual milk? Well, Peter uses two words to describe the milk. I'm going to do the second one first. The second one is translated in the ESV as spiritual. However, the word Peter uses here is actually intimately linked to the word word back in verse 23. That's why many of translations, if you have some of the others, I think NAS and uh, King James, New King James, there's several others, they translate verse 2 as long for the pure milk of the word. Because Peter is linking this milk back to the living and abiding word of God he was just talking about. He's, he's intentionally saying, hey, the milk I'm, I'm talking about, I haven't changed topics. I'm still pointing you back to that word. And well, what is the word that he's pointing us back to? Verse 25 told us, it's the good news that was preached to them. This is really important that we get that it's the word and the word is the good news. Because when we talk about the word of God today, often we mean it as just another way to say the Bible. And that's a legitimate way. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be clear that Peter isn't merely saying here that Christians should long for the Bible, though that's true. It's just not what he's emphasizing here. What Peter wants is for them to long for the message of the Bible, the gospel, the good news that was preached to them. This good news, he's telling us, is both the means by which they were given new life when they were born again, and it's the means by which their new life is sustained and by which they grow. So when Peter speaks of the word in this letter, he consistently uses it to refer to the gospel. Let me give you another example. Scroll your eyes down to chapter 2, verse 7. There he's talking about those, he says, who do not believe. Then in verse 8, talking about them, he says, they stumble because they do not obey the word. What word? Is it just that they disobey something they saw in the Bible? Just some random command? No, they disobey the gospel word. That's what makes them not believers. Even what he quoted last week from Isaiah chapter 40, up in chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, you got that quote from Isaiah 40. That points us in the same direction. We know we're on the right track because do you know where Isaiah goes immediately after he says that in Isaiah 40? He says, the living and abide, or the word of God remains forever. And the very next words out of his mouth are, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And then Isaiah tells us about how God comes as one who is both a mighty ruler and a gentle shepherd. Why am I pointing this out? Because what I want you to see is that both Isaiah and Peter are linking the word of God with the good news of the gospel. This is important for us to see so that we realize the milk we are to long for is the gospel word. Now, I don't want you to be confused because there are a couple other places in the New Testament where milk is used as an illustration of basic teachings for beginners. And uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 3 and, and Hebrews 5. It kind of uses that language as, a, as an illustration. So that is used elsewhere, but that's not the case here. By comparing these Christians to newborn infants, Peter is not saying that they're new Christians. 
Peter's not talking about simple teachings for immature people. That's not what he means by milk. Instead, he's using newborn infants to illustrate what a Christian posture should always be toward the milk of the gospel. So what is that? Why does he use newborn infants? What's he trying to help us see about our posture toward the gospel? Well, in case you haven't noticed, there is very little that babies can communicate to us. But the one thing that they know how to do is tell us they're hungry. Right? If you have a baby, you're like, amen. These babies, they want milk. They need milk. They crave milk. Their whole world revolves around just one thing. Can I get some milk? That's the life of a baby. And Peter's saying that's how a Christian should be with the gospel. Notice, this is important. Notice that he doesn't just say we should feed on it. It's not just simply taking it in and ingesting it. It's not just the mere mechanics of the act of eating. Just say, make sure you eat that. He goes further. He says, we are to long for the milk of the gospel. We are to hunger for it, to crave it. We should be consumed by a yearning to get some gospel. Infants are such a better picture of this than adults, aren't they? I mean, as adults, we occasionally, like, we'll skip a meal, like, just... Day gets busy, like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch today. Or we just, uh, we come to the table at night and we say, yeah, I'm going to eat, I guess, because it's time to eat. But to be honest, I'm not even really that hungry. We fit in eating around the rest of our lives. But a baby, their life revolves around their eating. Milk is what they crave. Peter's saying, that's you, Christian. And the picture of infants is helpful in another way because the milk they crave is what they need to sustain their life, what they need to help them grow. If a baby stops eating its milk, that's a cause for concern. If it goes on too long, you're, you're calling the doctor. You're taking them in saying, I don't know, they just stopped eating. What's wrong with them? It can lead to some serious problems. And in the same way, if a Christian stops feeding on the gospel, it can lead to some real problems. It's a cause for concern because we need it. The word of God that gave us life is the same word that sustains our life. Not only does it keep us alive, milk is how babies grow, right? It doesn't just keep them alive. It's how they go from baby to toddler to child to adult. Well, why does Peter say that we should crave the milk of the word? Look down there again. That by it you may grow up into salvation. The gospel word is not just how Christians are born, but how Christians grow up. It's what nourishes us and strengthens us and gives us what we need to grow. Friends, we need to have our souls and our faith constantly nourished by the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Christians never grow out of the gospel. We always grow through the gospel and in the gospel. Now let me circle back to the other word. Remember I said I started with the second word, the spiritual word. Let me go back to the other word Peter uses to describe the milk we are to long for. 
That first word, pure, is another opposite, another contrast. It's the opposite of the word deceit in verse 1. So it means free from deceit, free from contamination. So think milk illustration again. This is really important because contaminated milk causes sickness. It can even cause death. So we need to make sure that nothing's been added to the milk or that the milk hasn't been changed or modified in any way. We need to make sure it's pure, uncontaminated milk. And Paul talks about this idea in 2 Corinthians 4.2 when he describes his ministry. He says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with. Same word, make impure. God's word. He says, we won't do it. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to dilute it. We're not going to change it. He says instead, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's saying, I will not add anything to the milk of this gospel word. I won't add my own thoughts, reflections. I won't embellish it. I won't undercut it. I won't leave out parts that are hard. I won't say, oh, that one might step on some toes. I'm not going to change it, modify it. I'm simply going to state it. And Peter's saying, that's what we need. We need God's gospel word in pure, uncontaminated form. Well, where can we find that? How do we know we're getting pure gospel milk? This is where the Bible comes in. Because we find the pure milk of the gospel in the Bible. If we want to make sure the gospel milk we're feeding on is pure, we got to make sure it's coming straight from the sealed carton that it came in. Get it right from the source. Make sure the gospel you're feeding on is not just a collection of good-sounding ideas. Like, yeah, that makes sense. I think I've heard that. No, no, no. But can you actually point to a place in your Bible and say, there it is. That's the milk I need. The gospel milk that's found in the Bible is what Peter says we are to hunger for, to crave. In fact, one of the main evidences that a person has new life is that they have a new appetite. That new appetite for the pure milk of the word. If, you, if you're someone and you say, like, yeah, I've become a Christian, but you have no appetite. I just don't see that in the Bible, friends. Through the gospel, God both commands and creates new appetites. One of my favorite ways to illustrate this, there's a great, great old poem by John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, that I think states this idea so well. It's real simple, short little thing. It goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Do you see what Bunyan's saying here? He's saying the law makes demands of us. Run, John, run. Do, do, do. But he says it doesn't give us what you need in order to run. It says you must do this, but you don't have what you need to do it. He says the gospel, on the other hand, actually calls us to something even harder. The gospel doesn't merely call us to run. It says fly. You thought running was hard. Try flying. But what's the difference? The gospel not only calls us to fly, it gives us wings. 
So where the law might talk about the word by saying, read, Dan, read, but offers no changed heart to desire it. Through the, God, through the gospel, God actually calls us to something even more than simply taking in the word, not just reading, not just hearing, not just knowing, but longing for and craving the word. God actually commands us. This is a command. He's commanding you to have desires and affections. Do you have a category for God doing that? That he can actually command you to feel and desire something, not just obey out of drudgery and dutiful sense of obligation, but to actually want something? He can command that? You say, but how can we change our desires? How could he say, like, you have to crave this? What if I don't? How do I change that? You can't. But God can. Through the gospel, he not only calls for those new desires, he gives us new life with a new heart, with new desires and new appetites, particularly a craving for the gospel word. So how's your appetite this morning? Are you longing to taste some more gospel? Are you craving the pure milk of the word? And hear me, let me back up a second. I'm not just asking how often you're reading the Bible. That is a way and it's the right way to find where the gospel is. But don't hear this simply as me laying a burden on you of spend five more minutes in reading your Bible. I'm saying, do you long for the gospel? Do you search and scour the pages of scripture to find it? Not just so you could check a box on a sheet or say that I, I, I did what I was supposed to this week in my reading time. But are you searching and scouring? Are you going to things? Are you coming to church? Are you talking to people? Are you going to men's and women's groups saying, give me some gospel? If not, let me suggest two things. First, ask God to give you an appetite. Ask him to make you hungry. Ask him to give you a craving. If you've been filling up on junk food, put it away. And instead, ask the Lord to deepen your longing for the good food of the gospel. Friends, he loves to answer that prayer. Like, you don't have to wonder. I wonder if God wants me to pray for appetite for the word. He does. So ask him. The second suggestion takes us to our final point. The second suggestion to help you crave the word is to remember how sweet the Lord's goodness tastes. Look at verse 3. I'm actually going to start in verse 2. It says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now the way Peter writes this, the if here, it's expected to be true. He's not saying like, I don't know. It's saying like, that's why some of your translations, if you have something else, they might say, since you have tasted. But I think it's good and right to leave it as an if. It's important because Peter wants his readers to ask, him, ask themselves that question. Wait, have I tasted that the Lord is good? And if so, he says, okay, have you established that? You're like, yeah, I have. He says, okay, then here's what you do. That word good is also often translated kind. And I love these dual definitions because Peter's wanting them to remember that they have tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord. He says, remember that. 
Remember, friend, remember how you've tasted how good God is? Remember how you've tasted his kindness? Well, where? Where have they tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord? In the gospel. Now, I haven't really defined the gospel yet, and that was on purpose, because I want you to hear and think about the gospel through the lens of how we've tasted God's goodness and kindness. I'm going to point you to two places where we see this good news in the Bible, where we see the pure milk of the word. First is Titus 3. I want you to listen first to how Paul describes how all of us live apart from Jesus. So if you're here and you're a Christian, this is true of you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is still true of you. Here's what he says. Titus 3.3 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others, and hating one another. Did you hear First Peter in there? The passions of our former ignorance, passing our days in malice and envy. Instead of loving one another the way we're called to, we hated and were hated by one another. So what happened? How did we go from that to what we are now? Well, that's the next verse in Titus. But... When the goodness, same word as in 1 Peter, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In other words, we've tasted the goodness of the Lord when Jesus came to save sinners like us. And it wasn't because we did good things, he says, it's because of his mercy. He says, in that, oh, you've tasted. Did you, did you get a, a little, little bit on your tongue? A little bit of the, oh, yes. I remember who I was, and I remember that. It wasn't because I did anything different. I didn't clean myself up. I didn't get it together. But because of God's mercy, the goodness of God appeared in the form of Jesus. And he saved me. In fact, when Jesus came, he lived a life of perfect obedience. Later in chapter 2, Peter's going to tell us this about Jesus, that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, Jesus never did all the things that we do in verse 1. No malice, no deceit, no hypocrisy, no envy, no slander. Jesus never spoke a bad word against us when he had every right to because of our sin. It wouldn't have been lying. He could have been like, can you believe what they're doing? Father, look at them. Instead, he died in our place for our sins. And not only did he not speak against us, he now speaks for us. And Father, that one, they belong to me. I died for them. Not only was he not envious, he shared everything he had with us. Jesus did not have a heart posture saying, oh, no, 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 I don't want them to have something. And said everything that he had, he shares with us. In fact, that's the second way we see God's goodness and kindness in the gospel. 
Ephesians 2, Paul again tells us what we were like before Jesus. We were all dead in our sins. We all deserved God's wrath because of that. But then listen to what God did. But God, being rich in mercy, there's his mercy again, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. We've been born again together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's sharing all the stuff that Jesus is experiencing. We're experiencing it with him so that. Why did he seat us with him in the heavenly places? Why did he make us alive, cause us to be born again? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Same word goodness he did all that he's like i've you've tasted the goodness and there is ages upon ages upon ages of goodness waiting for you friends the good news of jesus saving from our sins and making us alive in him in that we have tasted the kindness and the goodness of the lord and i love that peter uses this taste because it's such an intimate and experiential word it's not simply that we've, we've seen his goodness at a distance. I've caught sight of it. It's not just that I've heard about his goodness secondhand from someone else. They told me about how, yeah, the Lord is good. If you are a Christian, you have tasted the goodness of God for yourself. You've experienced firsthand his goodness and kindness in your own life. When he saved you from your sins. When he showed you mercy and grace. And this taste of his goodness, Peter says, is meant to whet our appetites for more. If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, crave the pure milk of the gospel that helps you grow up into salvation. Tasting God's goodness in the gospel is meant to lead to craving more of the gospel word. He said, if you've tasted it, if you've gotten a little bit just on your tongue, you say, oh wow, what is that? He says, crave it. Have you ever tried something that just kind of like, once you get a little bit of it, man, from then on, anytime you hear it, see it, or you just think about it, you're like, oh, I really need to have that. He says, that's what we should be like with the gospel. A.W. Tozer had a prayer that so beautifully sums this up. Here's, here's the prayer, part of it. He said, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, hear this. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. That's what Peter's saying should happen. He's saying we should get rid of our appetite-ruining sins. And because we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, let us instead crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Let's be hungry for it, starving for more of his goodness. And let's do it in the sure hope that what awaits us is ages upon ages of God showing us the riches of his grace in goodness to us in Christ. We will feast from the never-ending supply of his goodness, friends. Friends. 